So hello and welcome to this month's Journal Club podcast. Uh, this week I'm joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Lead at the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre and Divya Cannon, Consultant in Emergency Medicine at the Alfred. Uh, thanks for joining me guys. This month we've reviewed two COVID focus papers, an orthopaedic paper looking at treatment options for distal radius fractures and a recently published uh, surviving sepsis campaign updates. So let's get cracking. Paper one. The first paper we had was titled Risks of Myocarditis, Pericarditis and Cardiac Arrhythmias Associated with COVID-19 Vaccination or SARS-CoV-2 Infection. And this was published in Nature by Patone et al. Clinical question they had was, does vaccination lead to increased rates of cardiac events, specifically myocarditis, pericarditis or cardiac arrhythmia? So what did they do? The English National Immunisation Database, or NIMS, was linked to the national data for mortality, hospital admissions, and COVID infection data to examine the associations between the first and second dose of the AZ, Pfizer, and Moderna vaccinations and cardiac events such as myocarditis, pericarditis, and cardiac arrhythmias. They used the same population then to investigate the associations between a positive COVID test before or after vaccination as a secondary exposure and the same cardiac adverse events. They also assessed the risk for the same outcomes following vaccination or a SARS-CoV-2 positive test in younger persons under the age of 40. So what did they find? Well, the study included about 38 million individuals. Of those vaccinated individuals included in the study, 0.004% were admitted to hospital with or died from myocarditis at any time in the study period. And similarly, 0.004% were admitted to hospital with or died from pericarditis at any time. Cardiac arrhythmia, in terms of cardiac arrhythmia, um, 1% were admitted to hospital with or died from cardiac arrhythmia at any time in the study period, either before or after vaccination. There's no evidence of an increase in the risk of pericarditis or cardiac arrhythmias following vaccination, except in the one to 28 days following a second dose of the mRNA-1273 or the Moderna vaccine. In the same population, there was a greater risk of myocarditis, pericarditis and cardiac arrhythmia following the SARS-CoV-2 infection. And there was an increased risk of myocarditis after vaccination, which was deemed to be higher in persons under the age of 40. Extra myocarditis events were estimated to be between 1 and 10 per million persons in the month of following vaccination, which was substantially lower than the 40 extra events per million persons observed following the SARS-CoV-2 infection. So the authors concluded that vaccination for SARS-CoV-2 in adults was associated with a small increase in the risk of myocarditis within a week of receiving the first dose of vaccines, both mRNA and adenovirus, and after the second dose of both the mRNA vaccines. By contrast, then, SARS-CoV-2 infection was associated with a substantial increase in the risk of hospitalization or death from myocarditis and pericarditis and cardiac arrhythmias. So, Divya, I'll just start with you. Very topical and useful to have this data to hand, which is reassuring to the public. And I suppose one of the main take-home points is that if you don't want to get myocarditis or pericarditis, get vaccinated. What were your thoughts on this paper? I think this is a good paper that gave us the evidence, the robust evidence for what we had already known. I don't know if there's much new information apart from the actual statistics of which patients were getting the myocarditis or pericarditis within the three vaccinations. But you know, it was it was common knowledge that people who uh, were getting COVID were at a higher risk of the myocarditis and pericarditis. And so vaccination had much lower rate in, in all three vaccines. And, and the fact that the second dose had a, had a high rate was what we had been seeing anecdotally in, in hospitals as well. 
Peter, just in terms of the researchers, they relied on hospital admission codes and death certification to define their outcome measures. As such, they were not able to determine what proportion of patients underwent cardiac imaging or biopsy to confirm the diagnosis of myocarditis. Do you think that's problematic in interpreting their findings or does it affect the internal validity of the study? Yeah, I think there's some issues around the methodology which sort of mean there's pretty wide um, confidence intervals around the data itself. The reality is, you know, I I've I never order troponins on you know twenty and thirty year olds uh, unless there's some obvious reason for it. I've never ordered so many troponins as I have in the last six months. So so in terms of myocarditis, which that's usually the way you would diagnose other than ECG uh, changes. And so I suspect this is maybe an overestimate in some ways of the myocarditis because most of the patients that I saw were pretty mild and most of the myocarditis, even with these statistics, didn't die. And so in terms of what really matters is how many people died from myocarditis, it was statistically insignificant. So that's important. I think it's, as uh, Divya said, it's, it's sort of reassuring in the sense that um, there's, you're much more likely to get myocarditis following disease itself. I suspect these are probably overestimates of myocarditis. The arrhythmias also, uh, again, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. If someone's sick with COVID, uh, you know, a sick old person will get arrhythmias. So whether that's a direct result of the being sick or the COVID itself, I guess, is another question. But either way, it's sort of uh, reassuring to us uh, from a public health point of view that the, the myocarditis risk is low. The uh, risk of serious myocarditis resulting in death is very, very low when you're talking about you know tens of millions of people. So that's all good news. Yeah, so I suppose the take on point here is you don't want to get the myocarditis, get vaccinated. You don't want if you don't get vaccinated, I suppose whatever more transmissible forms with the Omicron of SARS-CoV-2 virus spreading widely, it's only a matter of time before you get COVID and the risks if you do catch COVID massively outweigh the risks of vaccination. So I just on that last point you made, I think we do have to be a little bit careful. I think the different uh, versions of COVID are actually different diseases. And so the risk from, say, Omicron of uh, myocarditis might not be very high at all. We don't know that yet. I was biting my tongue there because I think the effectiveness of these vaccines and the risks are probably unknown with uh, Omicron at this stage. So, um, and then Pfizer beginning to make an Omicron-specific vaccine I think they, they know a little bit more about the effectiveness than uh, what uh, has been published at this stage. So we'll have to wait and see. So watch this bit. Um, okay, so on to paper two. Paper two. The title of this paper was Bowler Plate Fixation versus Cast Mobilization in Acceptably Reduced Intraarticular Disarradiated Fractures. And this was a randomized controlled trial, which is published in the Journal of Bone uh, Joint Surgery in November 2021. So the clinical question here was, do functional outcomes differ between volar plate fixation and cast mobilization in a series of adult patients uh, with a displaced and acceptably reduced intraarticular radius fracture? So this was a study which was conducted in 13 hospitals in the Netherlands. Patients were between 18 and 75 years of age and had a displaced intraarticular radius fracture with acceptable close reduction. Fracture reduction was considered acceptable according to the Dutch guidelines. Those randomized to volar plate fixation were operated within, operated within two weeks after the injury, and all patients were initially treated with cast mobilization. 
The patients randomized to the non-operative group continued the cast of mobilization for four to five weeks. The primary outcome measure was the functional outcome measured with the patient-related risk evaluation questionnaire, a validated tool for assessing functional outcome in patients with a distal radial fracture. The study, uh, in terms of results, the study was powered to detect a reported minimal clinically important difference of 14 points, and this was observed favoring operative intervention, which was reported at a follow-up through six months. The median score 12 for non-operative versus 5 for operative for 12 months was statistically but not clinically significant. Secondary outcomes then included a clinical evaluation of range of motion and grip strength superior to the operative group at six weeks, but not at subsequent follow-ups. Pain measured by the visual analog scale did not differ between the groups at any point. So the authors concluded then they defended that adult patients with an acceptably reduced intraarticular radius fracture had better functional outcomes during 12 months when treated operatively instead of non-operatively. Additionally, a subsequent surgery rate of 28% in the non-operative group was found. And they therefore recommended surgery for patients with these fractures. Um, so Peter, this paper raises a few important points about uh, efficiency of health services and appropriate patient selection for the procedures. Does this paper change in any way what you do with these patients when they present? Well, in lots of lots of ways, um, in certainly where I work, this sort of fits in with what we do already. So it's not a, a practice changing. I guess it's a practice confirming paper. We for the last, I don't know, number of years have basically uh, operated on all uh, intra-articular fractures with displacement so or angulation. So this, I guess, confirms that therapeutic approach. I, you know, it's not a strong study. There's lots of, you know, you could argue about, I mean, clearly it's hard to blind when you've got a scar on your wrist and stuff. You can, you can put a scar on there if you want and do it that way, but that starts to get a bit ethically challenging, but it's it's so it's not a methodologically it's a small sample and you know the outcome measures aren't sort of dramatic, but it does fit in with the the current process uh, in, in in major metros in Australia anyway. Uh, and have you, I suppose we've seen a few of these papers. That, the first of which I think we discussed when you were first on the podcast uh, regarding proximal humor factors when they were discharged media and how long they should be, the arm should be immobilized. I suppose a similar point arises here with this paper, anecdotally, the majority of these patients or a vast majority of these patients will be elderly who would really do with the use of their upper limbs and their ADLs. Do you think the 28% surgery rate in a non-operative group, would that make you more likely to refer to ortho in the first instance? Um, I think it would. And like um, Peter said, it, it is just affirmative of our practice. Unless the person is functionally, so, you know, not really using their arms and or bed bound, I think we have strong reason to refer to also for operative management when there's an intra-articular distal radius fracture. Um, like Peter said, there are some minor limitations and I think the blinding just could not have been done within the realm of sort of ethics. But I think this, a study really affirms and and in the theory and the physiology of, of and the anatomy of, of the distal radius fracture the volar plate it makes sense and it's just confirming our practice i think perfect we'll move on to the third paper so paper three this paper was titled the effect of early treatment with fluvoxamine on risk of emergency care and hospitalization among patients with covid19 this is the Getter randomized platform clinical trial and it's published in the Lancet that we set up. The clinical question here was, does outpatient treatment with fluvoxamine compared with to placebo prevent either extended emergency room observation or hospitalization due to COVID-19? 
So what did they do? This was a, a placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized trial performed at 11 outpatient clinical sites in Brazil. And the key inclusion criteria were patients older than 18 presenting to a, an emergency care setting with an acute clinical condition consistent with COVID-19 and symptoms beginning within seven days of the screening date, or a positive rapid, rapid test for SARS-CoV-2 antigen done at the time of screening, or a patient with positive SARS-CoV-2 diagnostic test within seven days of symptom onset. And the eligible patients also had at least one additional criteria for high risks of diabetes, systemic arterial hypertension, and uh, known cardiovascular or lung disease. So all these patients received the usual standard of care for COVID-19 provided by the healthcare professionals at these public health facilities. And the patients were then randomly assigned to fluvoxamine at a dose of 100 milligrams twice a day for 10 days or corresponding placebo starting directly after randomization. The primary outcome here was a composite endpoint of admissions to hospital due to COVID-19 related illness or observation in the emergency department for more than six hours due to COVID-19 related illness within 28 days of randomization. And secondary outcomes then were viral clearance in day seven, time to hospitalization, mortality and adverse stroke reactions. In terms of results, in the fibroxamine uh, group, 79 or 11% of patient participants had a primary outcome event compared with 16% in the placebo group. Hospitalizations were not statistically significant between the groups. There was a statistically significant difference in the number of patients who were observed in the emergency department for six hours. There's no difference in viral clearance of day seven, mechanical ventilation, number of days ventilated, or number of days hospitalized. And 84 participants stopped fluoxamine and 64 uh, participants stopped placebo owing to issues of tolerability. The orders concluded then treatment with fluoxamine, 100 milligrams daily for 10 days among high-risk patients with early diagnosed COVID-19 reduced the need for extended emergency room observation or hospitalization. Okay, so uh, David, on my reading of this paper, initially I was optimistic and hopeful, but the more I delve into it, I suppose I found a lot of issues with this paper that limited my confidence in the results, both in terms of, I suppose, the generalizability and the composite outcome that was used. Does it pass the bar for you for this to be introduced to therapy? I think it has some major problems in, in the interpretation and the outcomes that were measured. But I always think about, you know, the theory and the hypothesis that, that that's being tested with fluvoxamine and its um, antiplatelet and anti-inflammatory properties. I think there are many other drugs that probably have better theoretical benefit in COVID patients rather than the sort of SSRI that um, we're researching. But there are a few issues, um, notwithstanding the conflicts of interest and, you know, being an, an arm of a multitude of, of research studies and, and the attrition rate, really, the participants that stopped both the fluvoxamine and the placebo. So it makes it very difficult to really interpret anything and know how Peter feels about it. I think the um, every element of the PICO was suspect, the population, the intervention, the comparator and the outcome measure. The outcome measure was pretty dodgy. I think the, you know, in terms of being practice changing, I think the importance, I'm not sure why we looked at this paper, but I guess it highlights the importance of the National Clinical Evidence Task Force, which looks at every paper that comes out and puts it in a sort of paradigm. And if you look this up on the website, it just says, you know, only to be used in uh, trials or whatever. But, you know, there's one trial that's, that, you know, is not robust. It's hypothesis generating along with about 500,000 other interventions. Mm. Um, so I guess I would just point people to that website because I think it's really useful. And um, even outside of Australia, I think uh, a lot of people have been using it because it's just synthesised uh, the evidence as it is. 
Yeah, Peter, just you touched on that a bit. I was reading a blog in this paper and they raised an interesting point about the pandemic creating this environment for multiple RCTs and that if we test enough hypotheses, some will be positive by chance alone. And I suppose COVID has set the perfect stage for these false positive results and the tendency, I suppose, is to jump on a, a treatment as soon as we see a positive RCT. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, as you know, most RCTs are only set up to get a 19 out of 20 chance of being right and one out of 20 chance of being wrong. So that if you do 20 trials, it's likely that one of them will show a positive result when it's not actually positive. So there's that. But in addition, if people set up a study in a way that, I guess, favours a positive result by using you know, various outcome measures and non-blinding and stuff, then you will find you know, that that number goes up. So I think, you know, single centre studies, you know, outcome measures that are not reproduced, you know, like the, the whole thing around admissions and six hours and stuff, that was not reproducible in our health system. So things that are not reproducible, non-hard outcomes, outcome measures that are not clinically important and loose control of intervention versus comparator lose control of selection, all these things, you know, just keep increasing the degree of uncertainty. And as you say, there's there's been, it's interesting, The um, I'm on the task force and nationally, and they've actually made a number of study groups withdraw their studies uh, and in fact made the journals retract them because when you actually go into the statistics, they've actually been fraudulent in the way they've reported their results. So you know, I guess, as uh, as you said, in this environment, there's thousands of studies going on, but there's also thousands of people looking at the studies. So it's, it's actually in some ways being scrutinised more than they might have been if you just had some wonky little study on, you know, intranasal fentanyl or something than than normal because uh, groups like this evidence task force are actually going through with a fine tooth comb. I think even the applicability, because I think most of the uh, the participants in the study were unvaccinated, given that they had very low access to vaccines in Brazil. And how does that really apply to us in Australia with our results where most of us are vaccinated? So I really don't think it's relevant to our setting. And if you just, uh, I just want to come back to this composite outcome because there's a few red flags that came up. These are six-hour observations in the emergency department as a negative outcome, but I would have thought if these patients were observed and it was determined that they were well enough to go home, that it was a positive outcome. Mm. Can for any way to use that? <laughs> Look, I, I, like I said, I think uh, the study design and um, and the outcome measures were, were quite um, difficult to sort of actually even explain and and. I really don't know what else to say. <laughs> okay, I think we'll leave that one there. Paper four. The next topic I have for discussion, I suppose, was the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which had recently published their 2021 International Guideline for Management of Sepsis and Septic Shock. And these guidelines, they summarise the evidence from literature up to July 2019, and they're composed by six parts as uh, screening and early treatment, infection, hemodynamic management, ventilation, and additional therapies, and long-term outcomes and goals of care with a total of 93 items and 99 recommendations. 
And compared with the 2016 guidelines, there was 90, in which there were 96 recommendations, although the number of recommendations in the 2021 guidelines is similar, the number of strong recommendations in the 2021 guidelines has dropped significantly and the number of weak recommendations has increased significantly. And the level of the quality of evidence in which the recommendations are based has been significantly lowered. So we won't go through all the recommendations and there will be a link in the show notes to the updates, uh, along with some ED-specific ones. Um, is there anything that stood out for you with these recommendations, uh, Peter? I think um, I've, I've sort of been involved with this since the original sort of Manny Rivers study. What's interesting to me is how the sort of dial has changed over the years in terms of strength of recommendation and even retraction of recommendations over that period of time. And it, and it does demonstrate, I guess, how it, we were just talking before about single studies. You know, one study, one centre can find a, a result. It doesn't mean that it's true. And I think we need multiple studies looking at multiple aspects of treatments to come to a conclusion. So with this, I guess uh, what's happened over the last 20 years, well, basically we changed the way we think about monitoring uh, sepsis patients. So the sort of targets have really gone out the window. We've changed the way we think about fluids. We don't think a lot of fluids are a good idea. Changed the way we think about immediate antibiotics. You know, obviously, if they're in septic shock, it's a good thing. If they're not in septic shock, then, you know, they're a bit more considered. We've changed the way we think about vasopressors. We've changed the way we think about lactates. Changed the way we think about ventilation and uh, oxygenation. So virtually every aspect of sepsis management has changed <laughs> in the last 20 years. And even things like, which seem almost obvious, like balanced salt solutions and stuff versus, uh, versus say, saline for crystalloids, we've even sort of modified that a little bit from, you know, strong to weak recommendation. So all these sort of things, the intensivists would come down and say, you know, we want a lactate of two and we want to use Hartman's and we uh, want to um, do, you know, put in a, a central line or whatever. All these things that were sort of hard and fast rules over 20 years basically all get reversed. Yeah, like uh, I was uh, just in terms of fluids, I know they use the you've got the smart trial and the salty D trials and the sport use of the balanced crystalloids, and then also regarding the um fluid amount like 30 mils per kg of IV crystalloids within three hours that you're basing that on the pro- process promise and the arise trials. And what I did like Divya was like the Peter mentioned the vasopressors there, and they recommend the use for peripheral vasopressor use and not waiting for. Uh, central line and then also looking at your mean arterial pressure of 65 as opposed to 80 to 85 as what was previously recommended mm-hmm. well this is stuff that we're doing already but it's nice to see it kind of being kind of supported in the, in the updates i think this is something we've known for a few years especially after the initial trials you know advocating for all those tight controls and they weren't really working it was obvious and the first problem obviously is the recognition of sepsis and it presents in a, in a myriad of ways in different patients so I think the judicious use of IV fluids and early vasopressor, I think that's probably one of the best recommendations that probably will now become standard practice and in, in the smaller centres, and hopefully they'll be translated into practice very soon. We've got the, there's a number of trials going on at the moment about limiting fluid. So it'll be interesting to see how they pan out, but certainly 
there's just, there's no evidence you should be giving too much fluid, whatever that is. And the QSIFA had a very short uh, prime time, I think, and then that was sort of out the window. So they were a good, good screening tool, really. So Great. Well, I think we'll draw a close in it there. Thanks very much for joining me today, guys, and I hope you all enjoyed that. And we'll chat to you next month, next month's Journal Club. See you then.